Well, this morning, um, I'm speaking on what's happening in Israel and why. So I'm sure most of us are aware that there is a declaration of war in Israel and uh, people have in, in broken down the walls and invaded Israel and invaded Jerusalem and, uh, and they've invaded different parts of, of, of Israel. And so we're just kind of waiting, well, what's going to happen next? Well, why? Why is there such a conflict? What goes on? What's behind the scenes to all of this? So I thought I would kind of explore that this morning and give you a, an idea of, you know, what, where, where all this begins. Well, the first part is in Genesis 17, and it's something that we're very much aware of because we've spoken about Abraham. Now, Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. So what we have here is God making an agreement, not a contract. Now, a contract is generally between two parties agreeing on a particular, um, almost like equals, you know, you give me this, you, I, I pay for this, you give me that, that, you know, that type of thing. The covenant here is solely God saying, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm making an agreement with you for. Now, Abraham has to respond in faith, but God is saying, I'm establishing a covenant with you, an agreement. Now, if we go down to verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. So God is saying, Abram, I'm making this covenant. I'm making it to you and to your descendants, and um, that after you, and the land of your sojourners, the land of Cana, for an everlasting possession, I will be their God, and basically I'm giving this land to you. So we have that taking place, the covenant, the, agree the agreement between God and Abraham. Now, what happens next is, is kind of where things start to really get off, get off course. And so in Genesis 22, we have the offering of Isaac. Now, Isaac is the son born to Sarah, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, Sarah's 90 years old, and Abraham's 100. And uh, so they have the son Isaac, and he is the promised descendant. And so we find that God takes Abraham, tells Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to take him to a place that I'm going to show you, and when you get there, you're going to know it. So Abraham carries dead Isaac in his heart for three days. Three days, three nights, similar to Jesus. So Abraham is traveling this distance to a land that's going to, when he gets there, he's going to know it's, what it, where, you know, it's the place. So when Abraham gets to the land, they came, then verse 9 of 22, then they came to the place of which God told him, and Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Do not stretch out your hand against your lad. Verse 13, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket. 
Then verse 15. The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed. Now, the place that Abraham offered Isaac is underneath the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. Underneath the Dome of the Rock is a rock. It's the outcropping of a rock, and it is there that Abraham offered Isaac. It is there that Solomon built the temple. And that rock was the place where the Holies of Holies was, and there, uh, there is a cutout area in that rock that would fit the Ark of the Covenant. So, so we're looking at that. So we have Abraham, and Abraham has a um, Sarah, Abraham and Sarah not having kids. You know, they try and they don't have any kids. So what happens? We come up with a solution. <laughs> Sarah says, have my, take my handmaiden, Hagar. You can have her, and she will have a son in my stead. Okay? So Hagar has a son, and his name is Ishmael. Well, Sarah doesn't like it. <laughs> and God says to Sarah and to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son through your, through your marriage, through Sarah. And Sarah and you are going to have a son, and your son is Isaac. Okay? So for the Jewish people, the most important place on earth where Abraham was sacrificing Isaac. To them, that is their connection. So if you're looking at Israel and, you were, if you, and you're not taking away the Dome of the Rock, we're just saying if you look inside of it, if you look inside of it, you will see the place where Abraham offered Isaac. So the Jewish people look at that as their connection to Abraham. 4,000 years ago. This is their connection to Abraham, or 3,000, somewhere in there. So, but to the Muslims, they believe that it was Ishmael who was spared on that altar. They believe that Abraham brought Ishmael to that place and offered Ishmael to it, to God. But according to the Jews, Isaac is the son of the, of the, of the promise. So the Jewish people, in us, the Christians, we believe that Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, that Isaac is the promised son that God made a covenant with Abraham to. But to the Muslims, you know, Ishmael is the promised son, and Allah saved him. So, so from the very beginning, we have this conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. Which one is it? Well, the Quran does not say who was offered. It just says Abraham offered the son. But the Torah, or the Old Testament as we call it, says that Isaac was offered. Galatians 3 tells us, Know then that it is those of faith who are the spiritual sons of the sons of Abraham. So whenever we are looking at this, we say, okay, there's this war going on over in Israel, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, what are we going to do? Well, see, both Judaism and Islam feel that they have a right to that temple, to that rock. And what's, it isn't necessarily the temple, 
but that rock where Abraham offered Isaac. So if there is a conflict, <laughs> at the very start of the conflict is the Temple Mount. And we find that there's no, rec there's no reconciliation between the, um, the Jews and the, the Muslims because neither side is willing to say that they are going to give up the foundation of their beliefs. So why don't, why don't the people, why don't they just blow up the temple? <laughs> well, no, they can't do that. Well, so we find that there is this conflict that's been going on for, you know, I mean, almost 4,000 years. And the rock that Abraham offered his son to God and received the promise that through Abraham's son, the world would be blessed. So it's not an issue that we can ignore or we have a simple solution to. So we find that this is the fundamental core beliefs of both the Jews and the Muslims. So the Jew, to the Jews, the state of the temple uh, today is a tragedy. They see this as, you know, a, a great tragedy because here they are in, their, in what is considered their land, on their ground, and they can't go to the temple. And we find that uh, access to that foundational stone of their belief is denied. They can't get there. This stone is the marking place that connected the Jewish people to Abraham, where Solomon built his temple, where Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, and oral Jewish history, this was interesting, oral Jewish history says that God started the creating of the world from that point. <laughs> so uh, that's oral tradition. So this is, a, this is quite an important place that, that the world is focused on. And the Dome of the Rock has significant value to 1.8 billion people, <laughs> Muslim people. Almost 24% of the planet is Muslim, and so that place there underneath the Dome of the Rock has great significance. Now, there's conflict. <laughs> Imagine that. There's conflict between the two. Now, Israel, for the most part, is trying to say, well, another, another commentary or another individual said that Jerusalem was the best place, safest place, in the sense that Christians, Jews, and Muslims can all worship at the same place without fear of you know, being reprisals. But there are those who say that the Jews, <laughs> the Jewish people should be exterminated and they should be wiped out. They should not have any access to the Lord, to, the, to that land. So we find that Israel is committed to protecting the dome. Why is it they just don't give up on it and let the, the, you know, the whomever come in and overrun the place? Because if they allow the temple to be destroyed, they themselves, the Jewish people, Israel, will be held accountable for it, and it will, the whole world will come against them. But the Six-Day War that was fought between Israel and um, the coalition of Arab states, Egypt, J Jordan, and um, uh, Syria, we find that in that Six-Day War happened in 19, I think it's 1967. Uh, pardon? Yeah, 1967. There was a six-day war, and there was this coalition between three Arab nations and coming against Israel. But Israel was able to drive them back and basically had to stop what they were doing, and we find that 
Israel took control of the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. So if you have the map of Israel, <laughs> below Israel there's this gap between Israel and the um, Nile River, and that place was conquered by Israel. Then there was the, uh, a strip along the Mediterranean Sea that was the uh, West Bank, it was called the West Bank, that was conquered, and then the Golan Heights. If you were looking at the Sea of Galilee, the mountains on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, the eastern side, yeah, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, that they, uh, the uh, Muslims had their tanks up on that mount that could shoot over <laughs> into Israel. So, but in the seven-day, in the six-day war, that was all conquered. So, we find that Israel took possession of those lands after uh, the Arabs had attacked Israel. So, after, after the war, Israel received access to East Jerusalem. And East Jerusalem is where the Welling Wall is, the wall that is by the temple. And that was the first access to that foundation of Solomon's temple in 2,000 years. 2,000 years they had not been able to have access to that temple. And from that war, they were able to have it. This was an amazing event for Israel that could now pray where their ancestors worshiped God. So it was very much a part of them. So if you look at the stone itself underneath the dome, there is a place in that stone, they have pictures and stuff, that there's a place in that stone that was cut out that would have fit perfectly the size of the ark that is described in the, in the Old Testament where the ark of the covenant is and the um, seat, mercy seat is where the angels have their wings together and God's presence was on that. And that the presence of God came down to that uh, mercy seat and this was there in the temple and the holies of holies. Now, you say, okay, what does all this have to do? <sighs> Jesus is coming back. <laughs> what this tells us is the, the return of Jesus Christ is very near. It's closer than we imagine. You know, <laughs> it is believed that Solomon, uh, in all of his wisdom, uh, created a labyrinth of Ca caves and caverns underneath the temple. And there are some that they have access to and have pictures of. But it is believed that underneath that rock, there is access where people have had, they have tunnels underneath, and there's pictures of some of the, one of the rooms that are there. And they believe that in those rooms or in that tunnel or beneath that tunnel, uh, there is other tunnels, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant is, table of showbread and the candelabra of the ancient temple of Solomon is. It's still underneath there. Well, they are forbidden to, they are forbidden to dig for it. Why? Because if they find that the ark is there, the candelabra, table of showbread, all those things are present, it says that Israel owns that temple, owns that mount. But the Muslims don't believe there was ever a temple there. They say there was never a temple. It was, you know, so they dismiss all the claims. So there's, again, this going back and forth. So Abraham's account, uh, um, Abraham, okay, the Abraham Accord. There we go. 
Everybody hear about that, the Abraham Accord? So what's going on there is for the last couple of years, there has been this group uh, trying to come up with a peace agreement in Israel. There is the Bahrain, Israel, Morocco, Sudan, and the United Arab Emirates. The United Arab Emirates is compiled of seven Arab countries. Now, what they've been working on is to bring peace in the Middle East. That if they could arrive at this peace treaty, that all the countries will be able to get along. But what has happened? War. Did you know that, we go back in our study of Esther. Okay, remember Esther? Queen Esther? She finds out that um, Haman the hangman, <laughs> I always, that's how I keep them straight, Haman the hangman and Mordecai, her uncle, Haman wants to kill all the Jews in the province of Persia. Wants to kill them all out, and he gets the king to sign an agreement that anybody who kills the Jewish people can take their land, and they can't fight back. It's all yours, and he thinks he's going to win. Well, what happens is Esther finds out about the plot, just like stories, you know. Okay. Esther finds out about the plot, and she then tells the king, and the king gives Morde uh, Haman, her, uh, um, no, gives Mordecai, her uncle, permission to write his own uh, letter and that all the Jews have the right to fight for their land. And the celebration of that time is, is Purim. Do you know that this is Purim? This is the end of Purim. This is the month that celebrates the um, Esther's ability to save the nation of Israel with that one decree. This is the end of that, and here we have an, a, a Muslim nation trying to, again, coming against Israel. Now, Persia is modern-day Iran. <laughs> the Persian Empire that was going to destroy all the Jewish people is modern-day Iran. And we find that God is using, will use, <laughs> the nation of Israel, he will use their allies to come against um, the invaders. Now, so... The question becomes, what does this have to do? Well, in Ezekiel, uh, chapters oh, 37, 38, 39, uh, there's Gog and Magog. Well, Gog is the leader, Magog is the country, and we find that there is this prophecy about them coming. Ezekiel prophesies about them coming and attacking Israel. And when that happens, it's going to be one of the last events, either Either this event happens prior to the rapture of the church or sometime after the rapture of the church. So there is this inclination, there is this direction that we are very close to the return of Jesus. We are very close to Jesus coming back and rapturing the church. The trump of God shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet him in the air. That's what's coming. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. And the events of our world that we are in now is pointing to that direct thing. Now, will there be a peace treaty? There may be. 
you know, maybe at the end of the day there'll be a peace treaty and it'll all be over. But, you know, sometimes I, I, get, I like to study history. Did you know World War I? It was started by one man assassinating the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, Hungary, Austria. The Serbian, a Serbian terrorist assassinated Franz Ferdinand in June 1914. So, one event. <laughs> Austria-Hungary set out to punish Serbia for killing their archduke. Serbia didn't want to be punished by Austria-Hungary. Serbia reunited with Germany <laughs> and said, we're going to join forces with Germany. Germany said, we're joining forces with you, and Italy jumped in. So we had Serbia, Gem Germany, and Italy on one side, and then on the other side, you've got Austria-Hungary, French, France, Russia, and England. Thus, the saber-rattling and the beginning of World War I. All because of one terrorist, one person killing an archduke. An arch, yeah, an archduke. So I, I was surprised that, you know, mostly like when we think of World War II, you think of Hitler and his, um, his going to expand in power, his blitzkrieg, and he just overruns countries and so on. But World War II started with something very similar. I mean, just very simple. No, I don't call it simple to kill a person. But we find that here we have something, a group of individuals, um, whether, you know, they sent over 2,000 rockets, so it's not, that's not a minor thing. But what we have is an incursion between the Arabs and the Muslims and the Jewish nation. And there is this conflict. But you see, the challenge is for us to understand this is all pointing to a time in which Jesus is going to return. That it's going to set up, it's going to set up the return of Christ. And all of these things coming into play and into motions, we don't know when it's going to, it could be, you know, it could happen tonight. It could happen 10 years from now. But the chances of it being closer than 10 years, I think, are pretty, pretty, pretty great. It's going to be sooner than later. And what's going to precede it? Well, Ezekiel talks about the building of the temple. There's going to be a new temple built in Jerusalem on or where the Dome of the Rock is. So something is going to happen to that. Now, we don't know how, we don't know why. Israel's not going to try. You know, their, their whole goal is to protect it, to protect it, because they don't want the whole world coming against them. But something, maybe one of those missiles is going to go awry and end up blowing up the mosque. Who knows? But there's going to be something take place. And one of the things I didn't realize that, you know, underneath Jerusalem, in order for there to be a walled city, they have to have water. There is a water spring underneath Jerusalem that has been there before David's time. And David's men conquered that city um, by entering in through that that. Um, aqueduct up through up through up into the into the city, and we find that pool of Siloam, the all of those things are furnished, and Hezekiah's tunnel funnels the water underground. It's it's dug. You know the crazy thing is you can't imagine. You know 
sometimes whenever they're building tunnels and, you know, the arch in um, St. Louis, they start on both sides and they meet at the top. I would never do that. <laughs> What's the likelihood of them hitting together at the very top? In ancient times, they dug from both ends the lower end of Jerusalem and the upper side of Jerusalem. They dug through the rock and met. And it's, there, it's inscribed in the walls where they came together. And that water fed the Pool of Siloam, where it was part of the cleansing for the people to go up to Jerusalem to the temple. One of the things that says that when Christ returns, that um, he, well, this is at the end of the tribulation. He's going to return. His foot's going to step on, on uh, Mount of Olives. There's going to be an earthquake and all that. But Ezekiel tells about water going to the Sea of Galilee, excuse me, to the Dead Sea, and it's going to replenish the Dead Sea so that the fish that are in the Mediterranean will end up in the Dead Sea and will be alive again. You know, I always went, now how on earth is that going to happen? Did you know the Kidron Valley, right next to Jerusalem, right at the beginning of the Kidron Valley is Mount of Olives, the garden where Jesus prayed, and that valley goes the whole way to the Dead Sea. <laughs> and that when the water comes out from, that, from Jerusalem, it is going to be a, a, the water of life that is going to bring life to the nations and healing to the nations. And Ezekiel talks about how that God is going to return and he's going to set up his kingdom and how that the water is going to flow. And, you know, so these are all things that are in history. Excuse me. These are all things that are prophetic. But one of the things I remember was when Sennacherib, the Assyrian, he is conquering everybody. He's conquered like 45 cities in, in northern, in, in Judah, and down into Jerusalem. And he has conquered them all and laid siege to them. And he has siege to Jerusalem. Well, he writes, Sennacherib writes, he says, to Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Syria. Don't believe your God's going to be able to, to be able to keep you from me. Behold, you have heard <coughs> what the kings of Assyria have done. You've known all the people we've destroyed. You've known the cities, and we've taken them all, and we're going to take you. Hezekiah prays. He prays before the Lord, and he says, O Lord God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Isaiah responds to his prayer, and he says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. This is the word of the Lord. And he has a whole, a whole list of things about which he has prayed. And, and it goes through, and then in verse 28, because of your raging against me, this is God, uh, Isaiah speaking, God's message to the king of Assyria, because you have raged against me and because your arrogance has come to up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bride, bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back the way you came. What he says is, <laughs> you think you're something. But when I'm done with you, you're going to be limping back to 
home. <laughs> you're you're going to be limping back to Assyria. And, and one night, the angel of the Lord comes. 185,000 Assyrians are killed one night. They wake up in the morning. The king wakes up in the morning. 185,000 are dead. He limps back to Assyria. And when he gets back to Assyria, where does he go? He doesn't go to, he doesn't inquire about the God of Israel. He goes back to his temple, and his sons kill him at the base of the temple of the God that he serves. What we're looking at here is we do not need to be frightened because we're in God's hands. We have confessed our sins, and Christ is, lives within our heart and lives, and we are safe in the hands of our Father. And that God is in control, even, in, even if we don't understand things, bad things do happen. And for the people in Israel and, and the Muslims and the bad things, I mean, all the crazy things that goes on, we don't know. You know, we just pray that God would help. God would help those people and spare them, those who have been taken hostage. You know, and all these things that, that are happening in our world. But... Joel 3, verse 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring back the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Joel prophesies that I'm going to bring back the people of Israel. I'm going to bring them back to Judah and to Jerusalem. I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, the Kidron Valley, the valley of Mount of Olives, right outside of Jerusalem. And I will enter into judgment with them there for my people and for my heritage, Israel. God is going to enter into judgment for those who have been against Israel, those who have been against God, whom they have scattered among the nations and divided my land. He says, I'm going to be against those who have divided up my land. <laughs> so here we are, the verge of, maybe a peace treaty, whatever. If it comes, we hope that, you know, it ends and it's over. But some point in time, there's going to come another battle. And that battle is going to bring a lot of nations together to fight and to, <laughs> we don't know where it'll end up, but we know God will always be on the side of Israel because he promises that to Abraham. He promises it to Isaac. He promised it to Jacob, to Joseph. He promised it to descendants. He promised it to Joshua. He promised it to David. He promised it to the kings and that, that, that followed, to the prophets that spoke. He promised it in, in the birth of Christ, the coming of the Messiah. He promised that he's come to save his people from their sins. He has come that, he, that we might be saved, that we might be changed from the inside out. And so... We are changed. We are part of the body of Christ. Jesus is going to return. That is a fact presented in the scriptures. All of these events, they're leading up to that point. We are closer now than we've, been, than we've ever been. And we need to realize that our life is important and the life that we live for Christ is important. And when someday, <laughs> whether you know it or not, the trump of God will sound, and you'll be gone. <laughs> you'll be gone. 
you'll be with Christ in heaven. That is what we're looking forward to. And so we pray for peace in Israel. We pray for those who might be hurt that are innocent victims. We pray for them. But we pray also for ourselves, that we be ready when Jesus returns. Amen? Jesus, we thank you. You are the Savior of our soul. God, it is a moment that we have to challenge our hearts, our names, if our names are written in your book of life. God, you said you would forgive us of every sin. If we confess our sins, you would forgive us. God, we pray for your forgiveness. In thought, word, or deed, may we keep ourselves pure in mind, heart, and body by your grace and your mercy, by your power and your presence. We ask, Lord, for you to be with us now, not only in this day, but in the days ahead. We pray for Israel. We pray for the peace of Israel. We pray, Lord, that your will be accomplished in all things, especially in our lives. Bring us close to you. Keep us close to you. And if your return is tomorrow, may we be ready. If it's not for months or years ahead, may we always be ready to go with you to heaven for eternity. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.